Hello and welcome back to Cerebral Conversations. My name is Ben McCallery. And I'm Andy McLean. Hello. Today is World Cerebral Palsy Day. And so we've got an extra special episode with two extra special guests, Tara Moss and Hannah Diviny. And we absolutely cannot wait to share this one with you. Now, I'm just going to go through a few of Tara's achievements, Andy, so just bear with me for a moment. She's a Canadian-Australian author who has worked as a documentary maker and presenter. She's an academic, a broadcaster, a model, and a UNICEF national ambassador. Now, back in 2016, Tara had a hip injury that left her with chronic nerve pain and mobility issues. She's since become a powerful voice in the area of disability advocacy. Now, if you're listening to that, you might think, oh, Tara's quite a high achiever, but I'm going to match you, Ben. (laughs) Right here, I've got Hannah Diviny. Now, Hannah is also a disability advocate. She's also a writer. She's the founder of the Crazy Kosky Climb. She's editor-in-chief of Missing Perspectives, a 2022 Young Australian of the Year nominee. And as if all that wasn't enough, she's also campaigning with an international campaign for a disabled Disney princess. How cool is that? Oh, it's amazing. Now, Andy, we could talk all day about this one, but look, we don't want to give too much away. Nobody can discuss the issues covered as well as two people with lived experience of disability. So that's enough from us. Let's hear from Tara and Hannah. Well, Hannah, I'm so glad we're finally getting a chance to talk. Yes, me too. <laughs> We were, we were kind of chatting before, beforehand about some of the myths around disability and I guess as a writer and a speaker, I've been really focused on stereotypes for a very long time. And since I've become a disabled person, it has really struck me how relevant this conversation is to disability. There's so many stereotypes and myths. It's just quite mind boggling how misrepresented disability has been in popular culture and in the public's mind. Would you mind commenting on that? Like, what are some of the myths you end up uh, coming across in your life? Um, Well, one of the main kind of myths is, and this was definitely when I was a lot younger, it doesn't happen so much now, but kind of an assumption that because I'm in a wheelchair, my intelligence or my like ability to perceive the world is somehow um I guess damaged in a way so Mm. people would be would be surprised when I would be able to like hold a conversation or that I was going to normal school or that if we were listening to something in the classroom that I would be able to ask an intelligent question or something like that and I guess that's happened a a little bit back pre-COVID when I was traveling to and from uni, you would see people's eyes kind of widen in surprise if they're sitting next to you on the train and they happen to ask you like where you're coming from. And I'm saying, oh, I've just come from uni. They'd be like this moment of, oh, okay. And then you'd be like, yes, surprise. (laughs) surprise surprise here I am yeah a fully formed human being having a conversation with you yeah and then I guess the other interesting one for me and I don't know if this is specific to Australia because obviously we grow up putting sport on something of a pedestal Mm. but I would often be asked as a kid 
So what's your Paralympic sport going to be? (laughs) And part of me would be like, well, it's great that you asked that question and that you think I'm capable of doing that on the one hand. Second, you're not asking my able-bodied sisters what their Olympic sport is going to be. And you're not assuming that every able-bodied kid even wants to go to the Olympics. So why are you assuming that that's like the only level of success for a disabled person? It's such a narrow focus. And I guess it speaks to how little visibility there is for disability. There's the Paralympics and then there's what we see in movies. And, you know, the the, the sum of those parts does not get anywhere near the whole of of real people's, um, real disabled people's lives and, and, you know, the variety of their experience or even disabilities. Well, I mean, it definitely affected the way I perceived what my adulthood might look like as a kid. Like I didn't really see any disabled adults growing up. In fact, I can remember the first time I saw a disabled woman and she had her wheelchair on top of her car, like in a roof rack style thing. And then she pressed a button and the wheelchair kind of came down. And I remember thinking that was the coolest thing ever. (laughs) That is the coolest thing ever. I want that. I want that. That sounds awesome. Yeah, right? But I had literally never seen anything like that before and I've never seen like any disabled teachers or just even people like out in the community just living their lives. Like obviously now that I've joined the um, advocacy community online and stuff, I'm exposed to a lot more disability and a lot more people doing amazing things. Let's talk for a moment about social media because uh, certainly through the pandemic, but even far before then, I I think it was really online where I began learning the most about disability before I became a dis- disabled person myself, but certainly since as well. It's where I've kind of learned the most. I've learned the most from other disabled, often women, but really just the whole disability community. Um, how did we ever get by before this way of finding each other? Like I, yeah, I'm really not sure. It 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 would have been like trying to, I guess, do a puzzle without knowing what the picture should look like. Yeah, it would have been really difficult to navigate. Like some of the things that I've learned about the ways in which like we're conditioned to think and like internalized ableism and all of those things, and like just like not seeing the fact that I have to rest as weakness or that kind of thing, that's all been really helpful. And that's all stuff that's been made clearer to me through the disabled community online. It's disabled advocates that have made such a huge difference. And I guess um, outside of the disability community, people might imagine that a lot of that advocacy is like work to try to educate non-disabled people. And and yeah, that's, of course, that's part of it. A lot of us can get a little bit tired of just that, you know, that element. But I think a lot of the focus really is on uh, community and solidarity. It's actually about being visible so that someone who's out there right now, who, like you said, does, doesn't know what the puzzle looks like, knows that they're part of it, but just doesn't know how is this going to play out? What, what do I do? How do I cope? Can actually see someone else and go, oh, I see the solutions they're using to get from A to B, or I see how they're managing their condition and their disability, and they can see 
like rich and interesting lives and ways to like workarounds, you know, like definitely we're constantly finding workarounds for things other people might take for granted. And the vast majority of those things I've learned from either just my own hit and miss experiments or from yes. other disabled people. Do you have any examples that you want to share of kind of those like little tips and tricks that have helped? Probably the the whole idea of like pacing yourself. That that was a really new one because obviously, like you, I struggle a great deal with pain and fatigue and especially with cerebral palsy, fatigue is not something that anyone ever brings up to you as something. So when that first started hitting, I was like, what the hell is going on? Something else must be wrong mm. because nobody had ever said, hey, by the way, it's probably likely that you're going to start feeling pretty fatigued as you get older. So yeah. Probably pacing myself is the number one kind of workaround, but even just like the visibility of disabled people in relationships or disabled people being parents or that kind of thing, like that sort of visibility is very helpful for me in kind of combating against my insecurities around whether I can have that, whether that's like in the future for me, whether it's something that I, that other people would kind of want want to join the party on, I guess, if that makes sense. Yeah, well, just seeing that disabled people have whole lives and friends, and like we're just human beings, like everyone else, and we just are, you know, have these particular things that we have to do differently because of our disabilities, or that we can't do because of our disabilities. And the idea, I guess, is so often about like um, disabled person and carer or disabled person by themselves and there's like no one else in the picture. It's just, but that's just simply not, that's simply not the reality. I find that when I'm, uh, I guess, advocating on accessibility issues, often even like a, a very well-meaning council will simply not factor in that a disabled person might need access to a place that, you know, they're going to bring their child to or they're going to bring their whole family to and they're going to have, or they're going to have friends. So Yeah, and then they're like, oh, whoops, we didn't think you would come here. Like, whoa. Yeah, that's right. It's like if you make a place inaccessible for one disabled person, there's like there may be, you know, five people in that immediate family then that can't go there. Yeah. You know, or 50, depending on, you know, how, how big the group is going to be at any particular time. So I think that's a really good point, Hannah, is just the, the fact that the visibility online allows us to see people's lives, like, their lives being lived yeah. out and rather than this sort of this individual focus on kind of hey this person has a particular difference or you know look at their mobility aid or whatever it yeah. is um it's like no look at the look at their whole life as well and just seeing the, the context and the bigger picture and I think as well unfortunately kind of in mainstream media and society people still sort of cling to this image of like the sad disabled person um, and look, in the name of being completely honest about things, there are days where you do get sad or you do get angry or, or you're kind of almost grieving for the life you didn't have or in some cases the life you lost, depending on what you what your experience of disability is. But I think the fact that, like, disabled joy and disabled, like, fun is so often missed in society really doesn't do much for like people's understanding of who 
who we are as rich human beings. I, I guess I was wondering, in your experience, like when you became disabled, were people expecting you to sort of curl up in a ball and kind of hide away from the world or...? Yeah, look, I think there was an expectation that it would just go away. And I think I hid away from the world. I think there was some internalized ableism there, as well as just being a bit like at sea. I just didn't know what was going to happen and how to deal with what was happening because no one would just tell me, oh, this is this change in your life, so prepare in these ways. It yeah. just, no one gave me, there's no textbook. <laughs> no, one, <laughs> no one explained things to me. I really wish there was a textbook, Tara. That would make life so much easier. Oh, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it? Especially for those of us who have dynamic disabilities. And like, Mm -hmm. you know, the majority of disabilities are invisible or non-static as well. And it's like I'm one of those people who could look, you know, the same on the outside, but I could no longer weight bear comfortably. And I had a bunch of nerve pain. So people didn't have an expectation that I was disabled. Um, it, it, it just sort of had to keep being an issue, keep being a limitation for a long time before it was like, all right, you know, I'm not going to yeah. be putting the cane away. I really need it. And the cane also became a walker in a wheelchair. And that was just like that was when my life started coming back because I needed those things for my freedom and participation in life. And part of the reason I think that I initially just didn't understand yeah. what I needed to do was because I didn't know that I was disabled or I didn't know, you know, I, I didn't. It's just not as black and white as most people tend to imagine. So once I kind of accepted, oh, yes, here I am um, with this condition and I had a diagnosis, which is a privilege some people don't get, um, it, it helps. And it's like, ah, okay, the penny drops right. So all these things I'm experiencing are from, it's a cluster of symptoms around the same um, issue, complex regional pain syndrome. I can read up mm-hmm. on it. I can understand it better when I'm working with um, physical therapists and specialists. We can all understand it better. But that, for a lot of people, does, doesn't happen overnight. It just doesn't happen that easily. So it was a long process. And I think for some of that, I just waited for it to pass or um, I kept going to see doctors, but I didn't necessarily know how to use tools to help myself get out. And I didn't know that I would need them in six months, you know, time or a year's time and so on. So I, I like the visibility that I have now and the connection I have with the disability community, because that's one of the lessons that we all kind of have by being visible is being able to recognize each other and other people who are experiencing mobility problems, actually recognizing it. Oh, it's okay for me to use a cane in public because it hurts to walk and the cane helps. Like if it helps you, you have permission to use it. That's okay. The diagnosis might still come. Like you you don't have to wait at home for kind of permission to say, oh, I need this. Um, And that's some of the feedback that I get well, several times a week, sometimes several times a day from people going, oh, I feel I felt okay to speak to my physiotherapist about using a wheelchair because I really needed one years ago and just, you know, stubbornly didn't or was never told by anyone 
this should be an option you're considering. And then now I'm in a position where it's like, oh, this would have been so much easier. Yeah. yeah. This would have been so much easier. You yeah. know, it's, it's, it's just, it's a complicated journey and it's not, never the same for any two people. And I think that having visibility in the media and in pop, uh, popular culture and social media allows us to see the variety and reality of disability and actually identify when we're like one of those people or we know someone else yeah. who's one of those people and could be helped or could improve their lives in some way. I'm really lucky in that like my diagnosis came pretty much straight away because I was born three months early and with a bleed on the brain and all that stuff. So doctors were like, okay, we are looking for the answer to this because something is wrong. So yeah, I was able to be diagnosed really early and start receiving like the support that I needed from about 12 weeks old. So that sort of really early intervention and that kind of immediate acceptance of like, okay, everyone here knows that this is a thing that is happening in my life. Like I don't have to fight to be believed. I don't have to sit in a doctor's room and be like, this is what's happening and nobody can explain why. Like that is a privilege in itself. And obviously there's things that come from living with a disability from birth that aren't so great, but I definitely think having that like belief and that immediate sort of, well, this is just how your life is going to have to be if you want to even be like a functioning human helps helps a lot with that. I think it would be less confusing in some ways, but I also think, you know, you can speak well to the challenges of being a kid, like you're saying, yeah. and have having other kids not understand or having you not understand because you can't see you can't see people like you represented in the wider world. It's like, how do I, if you can't see it, you can't be it. You know, what am I going to become? How does this work? Is that big question you would have, you know, anyone has when they um, encounter disability in their personal lives, but certainly as a child, yeah, it, that's a huge challenge. It used to be very confusing. And especially like my two younger sisters that I have are extremely sporty, extremely fit well able to do things with their bodies kind of thing and that sort of I guess gap between us sometimes felt really pronounced because like even though I'm the oldest sometimes I would feel like the youngest because I need so much help or because like my sisters can go and do a cartwheel and I'm like yeah well that's not happening or like even just just run up the stairs to grab something or something like that but yeah I think definitely as a kid there's a level of like trying to figure out what it means. And I think part of the power of visibility is that it would have really helped me Mm. to navigate that more smoothly than I have ended up. Um, Especially because I kind of started realizing I was different when I was, I think like three, Mm. I was at daycare and I saw my best friend at the time. I remember it clear as day, stand up from the table after we'd finished our lunch and I watched her stand up and kind of saw what her body did looked down at my legs and went okay that's what we got to do and then when nothing happened I was really confused being like wait why can't I do that and then having that whole of well you're different like 
this is what happened. You've got this condition, cerebral palsy, all this stuff, blah, 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 blah. And this being like the big, but why? I guess because little kids especially ask why so much. And they're not really being an answer for that was really tough, Um, especially because I'm a particularly curious person. Like I was the kind of kid who would ask questions from the time I got up in the morning to the time I went to bed at night to the point where my parents would be like, okay, that's enough questions for today. Like, oh my God, just like (laughs) chill out for a bit. Um, So having this big question about yourself that kind of no one could answer. And obviously like they still really can't answer like science and medicine is working out and has come a bit closer to sort of figuring out like what might've happened, but they can't ever like be a hundred percent sure this is the reason. Mm. And I think having that giant question about your life is really weird for your identity because it's kind of like it shapes itself around a black hole almost. Mm. Well, with complex regional pain syndrome, again, I'm amazed at how little uh, science knows about it. Like, you know, it's been reported since the Civil War and it's had a couple of different names and there's a lot of um, documentation on it, a lot of medical journals writing on it, specialists around the world, but they still can't agree precisely on how it happens. It's generally an injury to a limb, usually there's a nerve injury, but sometimes not. It must be so frustrating. Yeah, and it's the treatment specifically that people can't agree on because people are so different and the way they respond are so different. And that's um, that's a, th- a thing I think a lot of non-disabled or non-chronically ill people might be surprised by is that um, say you finally get that diagnosis, then you want there to be a treatment that works for it. And there just <laughs> there just isn't, you know. It's not like a one-size-fits-all box. It's not like, aha, well, this is what we do. It's not a one-size-fits-all. And, and even the yeah, no. multidisciplinary approach, which I think when it comes to pain issues is absolutely probably most chronic illness issues and, and disabilities, but certainly with chronic pain, I can say a multidisciplinary approach is vital because nothing's going to work without a multidisciplinary approach. Um even so, there's not agreement on exactly what that should look like, how much of each of the disciplines are involved, how much of it's going to be physical, um, pharmacological, uh, medical inv- interventions, you know, um, you know how, what does that look like? It, it's, um, you can speak to the best in the fields and they actually don't have an answer for you. They have a lot of questions like this might work and this might work. And yeah. And I think one of the things that I often say that I'm grateful for is that the things that I can't do, I can only imagine what they feel like or look like. Whereas I think for anyone who acquires a disability Mm. later in life, you actually have that like physical memory of being able to do something and having that Mm. kind of be taken away I guess so I'm curious like how how you've kind of coped with like adjusting your own expectations for yourself that's a good question Hannah and I wish I had a great answer I'm still working on it um is the reality you know like um there's usually grief associated with this and yes and I'm still there you know like I 
Um, obviously, I have lots of good days, and I think I'm a pretty darn positive person. Just listen to me, pretty darn positive. I sound so Canadian right now when I say that. I'm, I'm a really positive person and self-motivated and always looking for ways to, to do things and to keep going and to improve things. Um, but of course, there's a lot of grief. And I just remember a particular day when I was in Australia last year, and I was a couple blocks from my house sitting on my walker or rollator. There's like a little seat on it. And I have to sit down anytime I'm standing more than, you know, sometimes it's a few seconds, sometimes it's a few minutes I can stand before the pain gets really high and I get dizzy. So I was sitting there and these hikers walked past. And I just remember the incredible grief that sort of flew into me and just hung on me because I was one of those people for so long. Like I hiked that mm -hmm. track so many times and was one of those people who just would, would chat and walk. Like it's, you're not doing anything. You're on a, you're on a level surface walking with your friends, totally normal. And the fact that I can't do that now and wouldn't be able to take those hikes on those tracks anymore was something mm -hmm. that I grieved. And I don't know that I'm on the other side of it, but I'm certainly adjusting to or beginning to like accept that there's this whole other world that I can experience differently now and that those things that are in the past are things that I did get to experience. I mean, the, the grief coming from loss means that you had something and you no one can ever take that away from you. You know, I... I got to take those hikes. That's a privilege that I was able to do that. And I guess now I recognize that it was a privilege and I get to hang on to, you know, what that was without an expectation that it will be again. I mean, I just can't do those hikes now. That's a really great way to look at it, I think. And do you find that like in terms of like processing that emotion that like writing helps? I think writing helps because writing has been a part of me since I was a little girl. Yeah, me too. Writing is a way to experience and create worlds. You know, like it's an incredible thing to, to do, whether you're writing for yourself, which is how I started, or writing professionally, which is what I do now. Writing is incredibly freeing. Like I think books are the most incredible time machines and, you know, transport that you can hold in your hand. You can go anywhere, anytime um, with a book. So I, I love books and I think writing has been a lifesaver for me through this experience and before it. Yeah, I would agree too. So I think I was four when I wrote my first story. Do you remember what it was about? Yeah, it, it was about, um, so all the kids at my preschool kind of went down for nap time. It, it, it was around Christmas. And when we woke up, we weren't at the preschool anymore. We were in the North Pole to visit Santa and to like tell him what, what we wanted for Christmas that year. I, I have it somewhere around here, I hope to find it. And then basically like we got to tell Santa what we, what we wanted and then we just kind of felt sleepy again and woke back up in the preschool and we're like, guess what mom and dad, we got to go to the North Pole. <laughs> just like this really cute, magical kind of story and I my mum had to write it out for me but I remember kind of that feeling of almost like a door being opened that I didn't even know was there mm. and then being like oh okay this is fun this is what I'm supposed to do so so as a kid I would often write with the same dedication that like 
my sisters would go to soccer practice or to ballet or or whatever the fact that I get to do that now for a job and like people pay me and people are actually reading my work is is huge to me it's a dream job and I think that having disabled writers work out there is one of the key parts of changing the myths and issues of stereotypes around disability. Like too long have we had a situation where non-disabled people were writing about disability and getting things wrong, you know, and now having disabled writers, you know, out there and being read in our stories, being read is just incredibly important. I know this is a, um, it's a passion of yours as well, like with missing perspectives. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, so missing perspectives is this kind of brand new initiative, we're hoping it will be a not-for-profit very soon, that kind of seeks to sort of address the marginalisation of women and girls globally around the world because we came across this report from the Gates Foundation that basically said that women were, like, deeply underrepresented in, like, news, media, decision-making, policy, all of those kind of things. And as a result, they felt really disconnected from those those arenas. Um, and obviously, like, I know for myself personally, like, the power that I found in being able to tell my own story and have ownership of that. And I guess that's the similar experience that we want to give to as many women and girls as we can. So at this stage, I think we've had contributors from over... 40 countries and we're being read in about 80 I think that's amazing congratulations it's absolutely bananas to have happened this fast as well it's it's a bit like being shot out of a rocket (laughs) in the in the best possible way yeah in the best possible way (laughs) but missing perspectives it's a it's a great name and a great aim because it is really one of the you know the biggest challenges um that marginalized groups face is representation and just um, being heard. Um, yeah, definitely. I know some of those stats. In fact, I wrote a book called Speaking Out, which was um, really spurred on by the fact that fewer than one in four of everyone in the world that we hear from or about is female. So fewer than one in four, the rest are all <sighs> male. So those are the people we're hearing from or about. That statistic just makes me like just sigh deeply you think like oh, I'd love this to be different in like 2021 and here we are so I do occasionally see like really encouraging shifts in stats but of course you need it to continue long term and you need it to also be like mm. broad and across groups and I have found that when people talk diversity and inclusion often they leave out disabled people are disabled women yeah it's almost like they kind of forget that we're like there and I'm like hello yeah that's right and disability cuts across all other marginalized groups as well so obviously there are disabled women there are disabled women of color there are disabled indigenous women and in fact like there's often um, a disproportionate number so yeah it's really yeah it's I think missing perspectives and just like acknowledging that those perspectives are important and need to be heard is such a a great focus. And I I just can't be happier with what you're doing there, Hannah. Yeah, well, I I feel really grateful because I was originally just brought onto that project as someone who was going to write a piece Mm. um, because a friend, Phoebe Saintelin, is our founder and she 
reached out and was like, hey, I'm doing this thing. And her her mum used to be a teacher of mine. And she said, my mum said, you're a really good writer. So I was hoping you could write a piece. And then kind of eventually I've ended up kind of becoming, I guess, the quote unquote, like editor in chief. Love it. Of that. Love it. And like, yes. we've really built it together. Yeah. I feel really lucky to get to do that. And there's some really exciting um, partnerships that we are kind of pursuing and building at the moment that I can't wait for people to see, like the, the content that we make. There's some pretty exciting news for you. Young Australian of the Year. Tell us about that. So um, in an, an unbelievable kind of series of events, I have been nominated for Young Australian of the Year for 2022 for my advocacy work. And the nomination in particular comes from this event that I do called the Crazy Cozy Climb, which I'm the co-founder of, um, where basically we help kids with disabilities, mainly cerebral palsy because we do it through Cerebral Palsy Alliance, but we have done other disabilities, conquer Mount Kosciuszko, which is one of the seven summits and like Australia's highest point. So someone who's done a couple of climbs with me through that um, kind of jokingly, well, I thought he was joking, said to me at the, said to me at the end of the last one, oh, I think this is like Young Australian of the Year material. And I sort of laughed it off because what else are you supposed to do when somebody says something like that to you? But he was actually quite serious. And yeah, it's it's been amazing so far, even just the amount of interest since announcing my nomination and the amount of kind of eyeballs that that's gotten to my work and to the things that I do is, pre- is pretty crazy to think about. It's not crazy at all because it's a well-deserved nomination, Hannah, I've got to say. I'm so pleased for you. Oh, thank like, you. You know, it's a, it's a well-deserved bit of recognition for all the advocacy work you've been doing. And it, thank you. We can't even encapsulate all of it in this one conversation, but it's appreciated. It's making a difference. And I'm really happy to see you recognize. Well, that means a lot because I think the one thing that I'm always conscious of is like, are people in the disabled community going to be okay with me having this quote unquote success? Like, I don't want anyone to ever feel like I'm taking up too much space or like I'm taking away someone else's chance to have a voice or something like that. So to have that support really means a lot. You have that support and not just from me. So you don't you worry about that. And not only that, but this idea that the the disability community has this very small slice of the pie, which is unfortunately still true. We just gotta expand that yeah. pie, baby. We just gotta <laughs> we just gotta have more of our voices out there and you know and that recognition is incredibly important for all of us. So like you are, you are paving the way and I love it. I'm trying. We'll see how we go. <laughs> see how we go. It, it doesn't get announced till January, but fingers crossed it progresses to the, to the later stages. Yeah. But already, even just in being nominated, it's just great to have that recognition. And I think my view is that it doesn't have to help the whole community for you to be nominated, but I think it is. I think it is. So that's another bonus. And 
And yeah, I I don't like that as disabled people, we feel like we've got the weight of, you know, expectation on us for a whole like community, a huge segment of the population. Of course, we can never, you know, can never live up to this idea that we have to represent everyone. We don't. But I do think that your um, being recognized is really helpful to, to all of us. And so thank you. You're very welcome. Thank you for everything you do, too. I know we're both super passionate about representation and disabled people's stories and visibility and just circling back to, you know, childhood and needing to really see disability normalized um, and see examples of disabled people around you. I know that you... um, you've barracked for or advocated for Disney to have a disabled princess. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, so that comes from growing up a massive Disney fan and kind of also I didn't see a disabled character in my life on screen until I was 10. So that's like a whole decade of my life not seeing anybody who sort of looked like me and being like, where am I? Like, why am I invisible, this whole thing? And just for anyone wondering, that was Artie Abrams from Glee. I was really excited because I was like, he can sing, he can dance, blah, blah, blah. Like he's got friends, all of these kind of things that I that I love doing and was super insecure about. I kind of felt like they were finally recognized. And I was like, okay, I can do this. Like this is a guy that's done this and that's doing things that I love. And all of that was going really well until... There was a sequence like in the second season, I think, where he kind of got up and was doing some dance routine where he was moving around normally. And and I was like, oh, wait a second. He's actually able-bodied. Cue my like rage. It's normal and acceptable for actors to kind of cast off my life when a director yells cut. And I know we've seen a lot of harmful representations in the disabled community and we've talked about this just among ourselves outside of this podcast anyway but the whole sort of idea that one of the easiest ways to win an Oscar or to win some sort of award is to play a disabled person because of that physical transformation as an able-bodied actor. And of course in the disability community that's often called cripping up. Yeah. So it is viewed by many disabled people as equivalent to kind of blackface or um, some other appropriation culturally or in terms of ethnicity. And here you have it still quite acceptable Mm -hmm. to, yeah, have a a film sweep up all the Oscars because an actor is, you know, quote unquote, brave enough to represent someone who's disabled. And this is in the context of the fact that many disabled actors can't get work. I mean, huge limitations there. So the the roles that they would be really uniquely suited to representing, like, authentically and accurately and using their skills with, they still are not getting those parts. So that's, you know, a, a definitely a point of, I think, really legitimate disappointment from the disability community. And I, yeah, I, sh- I share that view as well. I find it really disappointing. So I think um, specifically with Disney, like the idea kind of came from going to see the Pixar film Inside Out in 2015. And for anyone who hasn't seen that film, that's a really beautiful um representation of mental health so basically they've like personified the emotions inside this little kid's head so you've got like 
joy, sadness, anger, fear, and one other that I can't remember. But um, it's this beautiful film and like there's so many levels to it. As any adults who have watched kids movies know, there's always a level of like joke that you're only ever going to get if you're an adult. And I think there's so much nuance depending on who, where you are in childhood in this film. And I thought that was really clever to like treat such a kind of taboo, I guess, an unexpectedly heavy topic for a kid's film with such care and nuance. And I guess from there, I sort of thought, well, if they can do that, it doesn't feel like it would be too impossible for Disney to create a disabled Disney princess. So we launched the campaign December 3rd last year, which was International Day of Persons with a Disability. And that's celebrated on December 3rd every year. So put that in your calendars, everybody. And basically the idea to choose a Disney princess was this really strategic feeling from my end that they're some of the most visible children's characters in the world. They're the ones who you see on the bedspreads and the lunchboxes and the toys, books, birthday parties. So if a disabled Disney princess was made, she would really be everywhere. And please let the storyline not involve her magically becoming non-disabled to therefore be more accepted. (laughs) Please, no. I think that's a wonderful campaign. I hope Disney takes, you know, that that um, work you're doing there and all those signatures and guys, yeah, this is an area we have not explored and it's you know really important. I mean, depending on which statistics you use, about a quarter of the population is disabled. Like it's a you know not a small group actually. We're not we're not a fringe group. So and it's the only marginal group that anyone can join at any time. That's it. Too. So that's it. I got my hand up there. <laughs> yeah. Right. Now, one of the things I'm curious about is since you've become disabled, has there been this perception that all the work you ever do is only ever going to be about disability from now on? (laughs) Probably. I'm not very good at living up to people's expectations. I tend to do things my own way. So if everyone thinks I'm only going to write about disability issues now, they'll be disappointed because I'm I have some pretty varied interests. Um, Having said that, I do think it's really important to speak out about and focus on uh, disability issues. So I'm certainly doing that. Um, And it's given me more insight to be able to do that advocacy better, you know. Um, But yeah, I'm a fiction writer and I'm going to represent what exists out there, including people with disabilities, but it's not going to be the focus of the story. It's just part of the world that we live in. Like Sam Baker, who is one of the main characters in The War Widow, my latest fiction book. Mm -hmm. It's set in the 1940s. He's a disabled war vet, so very um, true to the time. And like, how could you write that book that's a post-war novel without mentioning disability, for starters? You know, a really important segment of the population, a, a larger segment, um, came back from the war with uh, psychological and physical trauma and injury and disability. You know, that's that's real. So he's a character that's in there, along with other characters that just are um, people who have disabilities. And it's just, it's not the focus of the story. It's just that these are people that are there. Yeah, I think that's really important. They would have been there, they were there, and they're you know, 
disability is, is still there today, always, in, in every community. But I, I just think there's benefit in being really direct and advocating on disability, but there's also benefit in just, you know, having it as part of the picture and normalizing it in that way because that's real. That's life. That's, that's where, you know, all the people around us yep. um, have these differences. I know you've just finished a new book. I have. Book number 14. I saw that a couple of weeks ago. I know. Oh, my goodness. I can't believe you've written 14 books. Where does the time go? Where does the time go? And I sort of had disappeared for a while to finish that book. And I was really happy this year um, in 2021 to be recognized as a global change maker by Conscious Being magazine, you know, disabled people writing on disabilities and just like just to have that um, recognition in that small way was really important to me to know that I have, um, you know, to support that, um, that we are working together and that I'm not like getting it wrong, (laughs) you know, because none of us, none of us are perfect and I'm doing the best I can in terms of advocacy and, you know, I don't. I don't know it all, and every little bit that um, that we do, I think, um, I think helps. It was nice to to get that. Yeah, kind of, I want to say it's like a little bit of acceptance there, and um, it was a nice feeling, nice feeling, and to be in that company. Oh my god, wonderful! I think that no one has a roadmap to kind of how to do any of this stuff, so we're mm. all just figuring it out as we go. Yeah, I think we're slowly getting there, but we have a long, long way to go. This is the time, Hannah. We've got this. We've got this. We're going to push this forward. We're going to propel this forward. Sometimes it can feel like pushing a boulder up a hill, but we can do this. Yeah, it's not Sisyphus. We won't have to push the same boulder over and over again. Oh, that is just painful to even think about. I don't think I can push boulders these days if I ever could. But that, yeah, I think there is some movement happening. And in terms of social justice, disability feels like it's, you know, really well and truly overdue. As a, as a focus for people just kind of to to think about and kind of unpick some of their yeah. preconceived notions and biases about because it's so relevant and part of our communities at every level at you know all ages and all parts of the world it's part of the world it's it has to be normalized because disability is a normal part of human life and human existence and always has been yes and it's not it's not a weakness either. That's another no. thing we kind of got to do away with as well. Yeah. In fact, some of the strongest people I know have, are people who have disabilities of various types. In fact, it's sort of like self-evidently true that they're really freaking strong. <laughs> you kind of have to be to get through it because otherwise you're like, well, this isn't going to work. But I, I, I guess one of the hopes of our community during the pandemic, as perverse as it might sound, is that hopefully with the impacts of COVID, people might start to take disability and chronic illness more seriously. I'd love that to be the case. Um, I'd love that to be the, it's hard to talk silver linings, but that could be the wake-up call that's needed to um, have the general public and governments yes, and businesses and powers that be acknowledge that health matters a lot and health comes in a lot of varieties and we need to um, acknowledge disability and chronic illness as a thing that's in our communities, a thing we can experience at any time 
and something that needs to be, you know, prioritized in ways that it hasn't been before. Mm -hmm. And I think anything that we can do to make disability a less scary experience, Mm. a less confusing experience, a less kind of isolating one, no matter how we do that, that's that's all going to be for the greater benefit of everybody. So beautifully put, Hannah. So beautifully put. Thank you. And I, I don't think we could end on a better note than that. That's just spot on, you know. Let's try to make the road smoother for people ahead, you know. Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> well, thank you so much for the chat, Hannah. It was awesome. Yeah, it's been so lovely to talk to you. That was Tara Moss in conversation with Hannah Diveny. Yeah, how good was that discussion? We loved it so much that we've invited Tara back for a future episode to discuss advocacy in greater depth with Bronya Metherell, who is the General Manager Influence and Social Impact at Cerebral Palsy Alliance. Yeah, so to make sure you don't miss that, subscribe now to Cerebral Conversations on your favourite podcast platform. And while you're there, feel free to leave us a rating or review. To learn more about today's episode, head over to the show notes at cerebralpalsy.org.au and to join the conversation, follow us on social media. And that's all from us for this episode. So until next time, thanks very much for listening and goodbye for now. The music for this podcast was kindly supplied by Ocean Alley. Check out the band's music on Bandcamp or visit oceanalley.com.au.